Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. As 2022 quickly moves to a close, we thought it appropriate to pose a few simple questions. Has the FDA and its Center for Tobacco Products moved fast enough to save the lives of millions of Americans who still smoke cigarettes? Or have they allowed political interference and anti-vaping ideology to hijack the approval process of nicotine vaping products in the United States? Joining us today to help answer these questions and more is Tony Abood, Executive Director of the Vapor Technology Association. Tony, it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks, Brent. Appreciate you having me back on. Well, I'd like to start first with a quick discussion about Juul. Juul Labs has just agreed to pay $1.7 billion to settle more than 5,000 lawsuits covering more than 10,000 individual plaintiffs, which represents the vast majority of outstanding litigation against the company. This in addition to a settlement of $440 million Juul reached in September with three dozen states, means Juul has committed over $2.1 billion to settle these cases. Tony, are these settlements a good thing for the industry as a whole? Well, sure, they are a good thing for the industry as a whole. I think they're primarily a good thing for Juul. I mean, the future of a company, this is what we would call bet the company litigation uh, when I practice law. And with a situation where they're faced with so many multiple lawsuits, the AG lawsuits, class action lawsuits, whenever you're s situated in multi-district litigation, that's when you know litigation has gotten out of hand. So the fact that they've been able to navigate their way through this legal thicket is definitely a primarily a good thing for the company. I think it's also a good thing for the industry that this chapter, so to speak, um, can be put to rest and put behind both Juul and the industry. And it gives the company, obviously, the ability to move forward now. Now, I bring Juul up first because, as everyone knows, Juul sparked the so-called teen vaping epidemic, responsible for most, if not all, of the problems facing the industry. But for Juul, would Californians have voted to ban flavored vapes as they just did in the U.S. midterm elections? Tony? Yeah, I think Californians voted because Michael Bloomberg dumped another $30 million of his money into passing this particular uh, referendum. But for Juul, no, I don't think so. I think the anti-groups decided long ago to make e-cigarettes their next fundraising target. Juul gave them a very convenient uh, uh, target uh, to focus upon, poster child, if you will. Um, but if not, if, if it wasn't Juul then, it would have found something else because they had clearly identified e-cigarettes as their next target, regardless of what the science says about it. Is the ban here in California, was that pretty much an inevitability? These bans are, in certain states, maybe considered inevitabilities. Um, again, you know, they take different paths uh, and in different circumstances, they can be passed and and against some overwhelming odds. But so much of it comes down to money and the organizational uh, organizations that are are set up to pr promote those types of bans versus the ones that are lined up to oppose them. And in this case, um, it got through the California legislature. The referendum put it on hold for two years. And um, uh, and now we have litigation, uh, which is pending uh, in the courts that could ultimately determine whether or not that California flavor ban will, in fact, go into effect later this month. These cases are challenging these particular flavor bans 
as being prohibited by the Tobacco Control Act's preemption clauses. In other words, that the tobacco, Federal Tobacco Control Act preempts states from imposing these types of blanket flavor bans as they've done in LA County and in, um, and in the state of California. Now those cases historically have not met with a lot of success. So this is a difficult challenge, but there are some unique aspects of these particular cases um, that uh, uh, Reynolds is pursuing. And you know, it's our hope that with this particular uh, Supreme Court, they will see the significance and the importance of getting to, ultimately getting to the root of this issue. On Monday, the Supreme Court dashed any hope of blocking the California flavor ban from going into effect. The justices denied R.J. Reynolds' emergency request for an injunction to put a hold on the flavor ban that was overwhelmingly endorsed through a ballot measure on November 8th. While this ruling does not impact other industry litigation before the court, for now it means the California flavor ban will take effect as planned on December 21st. What's the economic impact going to be um, as a result of this ban? Well, the, 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 the impact is, is significant. And one of the things that we, we did with when we filed our uh, Supreme Court amicus briefs was to present to the court the analysis that was done by John Dunham and Associates. They're the economists that we've had studying the independent vaping industry for, uh, for a number of years now. They look at the current makeup of the industry and they were able to look at the impact of the number of jobs and wages uh, and total economic uh, uh, output uh, that California would suffer as a result of the flavor ban. And, and it was, you know, it was significant. We're talking about tens of thousands of jobs, hundreds of millions of dollars in wages, over a billion dollars in economic output for the state. And so one of the objectives that we had was to present that information to the court to demonstrate why these questions that are being presented to the court are of exceptional importance uh, to the state, to the consumers, to businesses, uh, to give them more reason to take up the case and, and hear the case. How has uh, the industry's luck been in court lately? It's been a mixed bag. Uh, mostly, most of the litigation that we've seen has been on the uh, FDA's denial of flavored uh, PMTAs. The MDOs that we've talked about many times before uh, that came out en masse. Um, and so we're seeing a split in circuits. So um, the, um, in terms of the manner in which the various circuit court of appeals um, are, are ruling. And we're waiting to find out what's gonna happen in a few more circuits that will really tell, you know, paint the picture of what the ultimate litigation result is going to be from all of these challenges. But I think we've talked about this before, uh, Brent. I mean, my expectation is that we're gonna see a continued split. That at the end of the day, we're gonna have some circuits saying that the FDA's on uh, mass denial of flavored MDOs based upon the new product standards that they, or the new research or uh, PMTA standard that they put into place after the fact is fine. And then you have courts that say, nope, that was not appropriate. The agency has to do a holistic review. The agency is not allowed to simply change the rules and look for one test and in the absence of that test, ignore the rest of the application. 
Um, and once we have a better sense as to what that landscape looks like, it's going to dictate what happens next, you know, which case ultimately gets appealed to the Supreme Court. Um, I think, and, and then of course, then we have another question as to whether or not the court will take it. Now, in those cases, if there is a circuit split, that would, would, would enable better arguments for getting the court to, to take on the case, because that's one of the main reasons that a court, that the Supreme Court will take on cases, where there are cases of importance, where there are a split in the circuits that the, that the court has to resolve. In this case, they pretty much will have to resolve it because we don't, we can't end up in a situation where the FDA is legally authorized to treat companies in these three circuits in one way and companies in these four circuits in another way. It's just not workable for, even for the agency. Not even for the FDA. Okay, so let's move uh, to the questions I posed at the beginning of this episode regarding the absolute mess FDA and the Center for Tobacco Products have made in the regulation of nicotine vaping products. So my question to you, Tony, is has FDA put the lives of millions of American smokers at risk? So it's interesting you framed it that way, because one of our specific comments to Reagan Udall was that um, that the agency is not going to be able to save lives fast enough if at all, unless the Reagan Udall Foundation makes serious recommendations and serious process changes are implemented. So I think that is a real threat um, because one, one of the things we know with respect to litigation is that it draws out the timetable. Now, in, if you're a company selling and you have a stay in place, that's good for your company and it's good for your customers because they can continue to gain access to products. But litigation in an environment where all products are off of the market is more dangerous for consumers. But at the end of the day, getting clear resolution by the agency um, is going to be absolutely essential. In other words, what, whatever happens with all of this litigation, the agency still hasn't authorized ENDS products. I mean, they have not authorized in any meaningful way a diverse assortment of products. We have a handful of approvals, a couple of which are not even on the market. Meanwhile, as we pointed out to Reagan Udall, there have been over 600 new combustible tobacco products authorized by the FDA in the last couple of years, 250 of which are cigarettes. So this setup, where the agency is going, um, is, is just, it's just not tenable. And it's our hope that the Reagan Udall Foundation review and the fact that Commissioner Califf called for this review means that they are intent on making serious, meaningful changes. Now, I'd like to ask you um, to provide your professional opinion about Reagan Udall, because, of course, they are foundation basically set up by FDA. Their job is to I think make things very smooth for FDA. I mean, they're, it's, it's, it's integrated with FDA in terms of so many ways. I, I mean, how can you trust that they're gonna be objective? Okay, so first of all, Reagan Udall Foundation was set up by an act of Congress. You're, you are right, there is overlap. Um, for example, Com Commissioner Califf is an ex officio member. Um, and so I understand that concern. Uh, but they do have 
an independent tobacco expert panel, experts that have their own professional integrity. The commission itself has operated in a very, I believe, responsible and professional manner in managing this process. Uh, they are operating under very tight timeframes. And I haven't had an opportunity to review the other, they, they, they were authorized to do two reviews of FDA by Calif. The first was of the food program. And I haven't had a chance to review that one yet, but what I have seen is quite damning in terms of what they had to say about the way the agency was conducting its food program. If they hold to that same level of criticism and critique, then perhaps this process will result in some very serious critique and concerns and recommendations that the agency has to follow. So I think, Brent, we have to wait until December 19th to see what actually comes out before uh, we, we judge whether or not they are going to do something that is uh, meaningful or something that simply benefits the FDA. Uh, they certainly didn't do that in the review of the food uh, program. So um, I don't see why they would necessarily uh, do that here. Now, we've covered uh, these comments from stakeholders that have been made uh, to the Reagan Udall Foundation. I've got a clip here uh, that goes through some of those comments. Let's take a listen. As a part of the Reagan Udall Foundation feedback from stakeholders, one commentator said that reviews of pre-market tobacco product applications, PMTAs, in the CTP Office of Science lack the autonomy to exercise best scientific practices in their reviews of PMTAs. Another comment, scientific disagreement is frowned upon if not entirely suppressed and punished through various backhanded methods. And in another comment, in some divisions, leadership pushes a gotta get a mentality onto staff, which is unsupportive of a reviewer's fundamental duty to provide an unbiased review using the best available science. Another commentator claims that arbitrary and politically driven timelines set externally are driving reviews as opposed to allowing for a thorough scientific review. When errors are found, the CTP reviewers are blamed when in fact the lack of adequate time to complete the reviews are at fault. And one commentator wrote, in cases where reviews are finished and scientific decisions are made, they are also overruled by political agendas and pushed to change decisions. That last one has got to be the most disturbing. No, I think they're all disturbing, but yeah, I think the last one is, uh, is particularly disturbing. Uh, the expectation of companies, and, and this is what we told Reagan Udall, um, has been that they put in the time, they put in the effort, they put in all the money to conduct the research, to comply with what the statute requires, to comply with what the FDA required. Um, and the basic expectation was that the agency was going to faithfully review all of the science and ultimately make a decision based upon the science. It's frankly all we have ever been asking for. So that last statement, um, as well as the other statements that suggest that the science is somehow a football that can be tossed around um, and carried in different directions uh, is, is, is very, very troubling because it cuts at the core of what the agency 
has said it is doing and is committed to doing and is frankly legally required to do. Um, and so how the Reagan Udall Foundation addresses these comments, which of course were from FDA staff, uh, is going to be very interesting. And to the earlier question you had, I think these comments probably give Reagan Udall much more interest, incentive, reason, whatever you want to call it, to 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 say, wow, something is very wrong here that needs to be addressed. And one of the top questions we started this episode with was, you know, has FDA and CTP, have they allowed, uh, you know, political interference to hijack the process? And it sounds clearly that that's indeed the case. Well, we, we, we made that argument to Reagan Udall um, and others. And we saw that particularly in the way that the um, flavored MDNs, MDOs came down and what happened in June and July of 2020 uh, that precipitated the en masse denial of flavored ends. Um, and, you know, I, I've, I've spoken about this numerous times publicly, uh, Brent, but the reality is when the agency had laid out a plan, the Office of Science had laid out its review process on June 11th of 2020, and then on June 23rd, the acting commissioner went before Congress and got beat up. And I think we did an episode on this particular series of events. Um, and what we learned was that she got personally involved in the whole issue. And it was only a few weeks later that the fatal flaw memo was written that said, if you don't have these this one particular study, we're not going to look at the rest of your application. Now, uh, just a bit of house cleaning. You said that was in 2020, or was that in 2021? Uh, I'm sorry, 2021. I mean, we're talking about a less than 30-day complete change in the manner of which in which FDA was reviewing these particular applications, as well as a complete change in all of the priorities that they were looking at. Because on June 11th, Matt Holman of the Office of Science said, our top priority is Juul and the other large company applications. That will be our focus between now and September 9. And as of the time that the acting commissioner got involved and that new memo was written, that focus was completely flipped. And it was the small manufacturers and the flavored applications in particular that were put on the chopping block. So, and, and we know that that came only as a result of that particular hearing. Nothing else had changed during that year. The youth data figures had dropped that particular year, right? So there was nothing else for FDA to point to with respect to flavors or youth to suggest that they needed to make another shift in their approach. Um, it was basically uh, the haranguing uh, that took place. Um, and so what we knew was happening and we felt in our gut was happening that we raised directly with um, the agency in mid-September, once we start started to see these rolling out, we raised these specific points and 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 noted this type of interference. Um, you know, it was just amazing to see the comments that came out uh, from FDA staff and Reagan Udall because they simply really put the uh, the spotlight on what everybody thought was going on. Uh, they basically said, "Yeah, it's happening." So this was like the ball game was changed after uh, the applications had long been submitted. Yeah, and we called it a retroactive prerequisite. I mean, no one can comply with a retroactive prerequisite. And um, 
the um, and ultimately that is that is what is at, at the core of a lot of the the litigation. Um, I, I, and it's hard for me to tell whether the comments that were written by the FDA staff were referring to the specific example that I was talking about. Um, my concern is that perhaps that they saw other examples of that playing out because we do have numerous other examples in which um, senior senators were making very vocal calls to to make demands claiming that they were meeting with the commissioner and telling the commissioner what he had to do like for example vis-a-vis jewel i mean that was another horrific example where you had enormous public pressure immediately preceding immediately preceding a major decision where legislative threats uh, were made and all of a sudden then a decision was issued by CTP and of course in the case of Jewel was very quickly rescinded because they claimed that they had to review more of the science which is astonishing after ha- having had that application in hand for two years right I mean it's so something is definitely as the, as uh, they'd say rotten in the state of Denmark we're gonna have to find out exactly what that is, and uh, and that hopefully the Reagan Udall Foundation will lay bare uh, the, their findings uh, so that corrections and, and can be made. So Tony, we've been talking about this presentation that VTA made to the Reagan Udall Foundation, and I just want to mention to our viewers that if you get a chance, I highly recommend that you go to VTA's website and read the article that they have posted there on the Reagan Udall presentation because I. It's one of the best summations I've seen covering what's gone wrong at FTA, at the FDA and CTP and what must be done to fix it. And, you know, it's filled with gory details. Uh, so it's definitely a good read. Tony, um, one of the things that um, was mentioned in your documentation was a, a comment from a Reagan Udall stakeholder. FDA needs to use its authority to refuse import of all disposable tobacco ends products that lack pre-market authorization. This would virtually eliminate youth access to disposables and address unauthorized, unsafe, and in many cases, counterfeit disposable products. I found that a very interesting comment um, coming out of the Reagan Udall milieu. What are your thoughts on that? We agree. <laughs> I mean, we've been asking the agency uh, to utilize its enforcement authority to stop the flow of illicit products into the country for quite some time. And it is without question a, a serious problem uh, because, and, and it all started when the agency itself banned flavored pot and cartridges, cartridge products in January of 2020. Um, and then they exempted disposables from that particular ban, even though disposables had all the same product characteristics of closed systems uh, that they used to justify the ban on flavored pots and cartridges. As soon as the agency did that, they effectively put a, you know, we're open for business sign on the United States and in rushed all of these flavored disposables and they haven't stopped. The problem, of course, is that all of these are new products, right? They're not pre-August 8, 2016 products. The agency should be able to easily identify them and and interdict them at the port and, and keep them out of the country. But they haven't done that. 
uh, for years now. And it begs the question as to why that is not, not that hasn't been done. And it's had a terrible impact on the domestic market, particularly for open systems, because as disposables uh, rose in popularity, open system vaping took a significant hit. Uh, and so domestic companies that were going through the PMTA process, that were spending the money on that process, were, were, were getting hit from both sides. They're getting government demanding to comply with a regulation, which they're doing, and then they're facing competition in the marketplace from companies that uh, are not complying with any regulation whatsoever. And this has been our message to the agency. When we met with Commissioner Califf, we said, look, you've got good actors and bad actors in the marketplace, and your number one priority has to be to stop these bad actors, right? Work with the good actors. They're the ones that are trying to work with the agency, trying to comply with the regulations. But if you do not stop bad actors from entering the country with all these different products, you're making the regulatory process itself, the PMTA process itself, irrelevant. I wonder, I mean, obviously disposables are very popular uh, for many users, but within the industry, retailers, I mean, it's just such a quagmire. It feels it feels like the, the, the problems with Juul just magnified a million times fold. But there is one thing that we've noticed in our coverage over the last year or two years with regarding disposables. More and more, it feels that like that they've almost made vaping too big to fail. It's just like, how do you, there's so many of them. The flood is so big and it's not just the U.S. It's Canada. I mean, it's all over the world. These disposables are, they're flooding the market everywhere. And it appears that it's, it's at a level that regulators just can't possibly get control of and in some ways does that then protect vaping at least access as a whole moving in the future well that's a good question i mean the question is what do we want to have right do we want to just have uh a quasi-regulated market where the bad actors have enough product in the market so that consumers can get whatever can get what they want um ultimately i think we need to have a regulated market there's a reason why companies small, medium, and large spent the time and energy and money and resources on, on PMTAs. The last thing they need is companies that are simply flaunting the FDA uh, and the entire process. Um, whether it's too big to fail, um, it, it's kind of a, it, that's a, that's a tough one. Uh, you know, I could see a scenario in which the agency, um, you know, says, look, we want to have only a handful of companies that we have to regulate. Well, that could well be the case, but they're certainly not acting in a way to make that happen. And they're certainly not going to achieve their enforcement objectives by continuing their whack-a-mole approach. I just presented to the Food, Drug, and Law Institute's uh, Enforcement Compliance and Litigation Conference um, the other day. And this was one of the key things that I mentioned is that, look, compliance at retail is probably the least efficient way for the agency to go about uh, enforcing. Uh, not only are retail compliance rates particularly high, in other words, of the thousands and thousands and thousands of inspections they do, I think 85 plus percent of the time, they come away with no violations whatsoever. Uh, and this is over the course of, of three and a half to four years of data. Okay, so, and then when it comes to vape shops, that's where you have the lowest a violation rate of of any uh, of the types of products that are being sold. 
Um, so I think that it is Im Im imperative for the agency to realize that with the flood of products coming in the country, your biggest weapon that they have is their ability to stop those products at the handful of ports of entry rather than at the 350 to 400,000 retail locations, convenience stores, gas stations, tobacco outlets, grocers, bodegas, um, you, so on and so forth uh, that, that are selling uh, tobacco products. I mean, it's just not realistic. So that's the question. Can they actually stop disposables coming into the country from the ports? Sure they can. They have incredible power to do that. Um, they have uh, uh, working with Customs and Border Protection. They are to review every product, uh, every shipment that comes in for a regulated product. A lot of products are coming in with that are named differently, so they're mislabeled, but they know that. Um, there are a number of, of things that um, uh, we know that uh, of how products are coming in inappropriately. And we've offered to share information with the agency. We've offered to sit down with the Office of Compliance and Enforcement. Um, and we're waiting for them to take us up on that invitation because it is extremely important for them to, I think, get input from industry rather than keep industry at arm's length in this, in this circumstance. Uh, it, industry, which is comprised of good actors, are very interested in seeing the agency be successful at keeping bad actors out of the market for the reasons I talked about before. Now, Tony, in that presentation you made regarding enforcement in the moving beyond warning letters uh, section, and I know uh, quite a few people are kind of exhausted by the amount of warning letters that come out from the FDA, but really no action seems to be taken. In number two, you say remove ends products from the market for which no PMTA has been filed. If you received an MDO and you're still on the market, but you don't have any uh, court uh, moves left or whatever, should those uh, people, should those businesses have their products taken off the market? Are you calling for a crackdown on that? Well, look, we, we, what we're calling for is a readjustment of FDA's priorities in enforcement, okay? They seem to like to go pick on the little guy. They seem to like to go and say, hey, what we need you to do, what, what we want to do is go shop by shop or retail location and say, hey, you got to take that product off of the shelves, whether it's your own manufactured product or uh, simply a third party product that you are selling. Um, they issued six injunctions, for example, the first major actions by the Department of Justice, but they were against small players, right? I mean, so. And they were very, you know, loud about it. And, and and it's okay that they did that. I mean, because if a company has not filed a PMTA, they every look. This industry has known what the rules are, at least the basic ones are. Uh, and if they have not made an effort to even attempt to comply, then they really can't make a case for continuing to sell. So that shouldn't surprise anybody. But what we've said, Brent, and I want to be really clear about this is that their priorities are wrong. And they have to first focus and target disposables that keep entering the country without any PMTA that are post uh, uh, 8 because they're killing, frankly, the open system industry and, and, and really making it difficult uh, for the industry to operate. The second thing is they need to target products for which no PMTA has been filed. And in sub priorities, look at tobacco derived nicotine products, and then look at uh, non-tobacco nicotine products. And the reason I even bring that up is because we know that 
non-tobacco nicotine is such a small portion of the market. The third priority is focus on those counterfeit products and other products that are grossly violating obvious marketing uh, standards. And then the next one, the last priority is focus on the MDO'd products, um, unless of course they are subject to a stay. So we're saying, look, you've had companies that have tried to comply with the process. Even if you've issued an MDO, some of those companies may not have frankly uh, uh, challenged that MDO because they didn't have the, the funding to be able to do it, they had to, to appeal. But there's pending litigation that's out there that may resolve this question entirely differently. So that's why we actually put them at the bottom of the list in terms of priorities. And if the FDA wants to really regulate the market, they have to go after those, the, 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 the other areas of, uh, of the, the priority list that I just outlined. And then overall uh, for FDA and CTP, what are you hoping that they will do uh, in terms of their review, the science, political interference and so forth for 2023? Well, look, I think that the when the Reagan Udall Foundation report comes out on December 19th, uh, we're going to be in a very interesting position. They're going to be in a very interesting position, depending upon what the report says. I think it's going to set the table uh, for the challenges uh, that they have to uh, overcome. If they are significant and they're specific, um, then the agency is going to have to, I think, rethink a lot of what it has been doing and how it has been doing it. I mean, the, the, one of the primary recommendations that we have made is that the agency must insulate the scientific review process from uh, any sort of external in influence, whether it be from above or from external political pressures. And the second thing that we, we, we have recommended is that they basically rescind the approach that they have taken with respect to the flavored product and applications, take those back under consideration. I don't believe they're going to do this, in, at least in this way, but the right thing to do would be to do a reset, knowing that you're going to have conflicting litigation uh, and and that's ultimately going to to extend the time before there is any resolution. So if they really wanted to get to the core of the issue with respect to flavored ends applications, they would take them back under consideration. They would put them back into the process and then they would then execute that process faithfully according to the science. Um, but our expectation is that frankly, they are going to have to respond and, and, and perhaps reconfigure what they're doing. For our part, we're gonna to continue to constructively engage with the agency. As you know, we've met with them a number of times this year. Uh, we have a plan to meet with them again early next year. And uh, and we're gonna to continue to offer recommendations on all of these issues because it is extremely important that our industry gets to a point where we actually have a clearly regulated marketplace that's filled with a variety of vaping products and not just tobacco flavored vaping products because everyone knows that's not going to cut it when it comes to helping adults. And fortunately, we have scientists, leading tobacco control scientists that have making the case against these types of flavor uh, restrictions and encouraging the FDA to take other actions, such as uh, putting flavored vaping products into adult-only stores. These are practical solutions that we believe need to be implemented. Uh, and we have laid the groundwork for taking action in this, in this coming Congress. And we're excited about what's coming next year, Brent, because 
we've done a lot of groundwork this year, but we need to put into place real restrictions uh, on, on marketing that we've been talking about for years, on youth access, as well as restrictions that um, will ensure that flavored vaping products are available to adults who need and are wanting to rely on those products to quit smoking cigarettes.